Last week, we finished with an idea that I just want to wrap up a little bit more to because it really is the idea of Hanukkah. And the idea that we ended with last time, and you know, we're sort of finding it and then half discovering it as we were talking about it. So I did some more thinking about it um, in a few different contexts, is the idea that a, that a truma, that when someone gives the best or the first mm-hmm. of something, um, that, that this has the power to spread its, the holiness or the dedication of the first and best into the rest of, it, of the product. So when you take challah, the challah is kadosh, is holy, but the kadusha of the challah also impacts the rest of the dough. And the Shabbos, the kadusha of Shabbos, can penetrate into the rest of the week. And this idea goes in many places. And in particular, this is related to the idea of a Chanukah. Because lechanech is to educate. Chanukah is dedication. So what do those things have in common? And uh, if we look at the first use of the word, well, I don't know if it's the first use because there's a person named Chanukh. But <laughs> where it says that Avraham took those he had educated, Chanichav, then Rashi explains over there that what is chinuch, what is education? It's not education, it's not dedication, it's really some combination of those. It's the hachnasas knisas, the beginning of the entering of a person or a tool into the craft which it is destined to stand up and perform well, to, to persist in. So when you educate somebody, what you're doing is you're getting them set on the path towards becoming the person they have the ability to become for the long term. That's why Hanukh Lanar is al pidarko. You have to educate a child according to who, according to his own path. Gam kiaskin lo so that in, when he's older he won't go off of it. Because the whole point of Hanukh of Chinuch is something that's asid la modbo, something you can maintain and keep going for the long term. And so a Chanukah, like Chanukah Samizbeach, the dedication of the Mizbeach, Chanukah Samishkan, dedication of the Mishkan, when a person is, moves into a new home, make a Chanukah Tabayit, a dedication of the home, the idea is you initiate the first use of the house, the first use of the Mishkan, the first use of a Mizbeach, of a menorah, should be as you wish it to continue. Even if all along the way it won't be perfect and your intentions might stray a little or you might get distracted, but by infusing it the very first step, real dedication, real purity of thought, real thought about what the long-term goal is, this will then penetrate the rest, That's, which is similar to the idea sof ma'aseh, the end deed, is in the thought up front. That thought at the beginning, thinking about the big picture, thinking about the goal, thinking about purpose, all of that infuses everything that follows with holiness and dedication and keeps you on the track of where you need to go. And this is the idea of Hanukkah as well. That's a candle, right? The idea that a little bit of light pushes away a very large amount of darkness. The little bit of light in one place can infuse an entire large space by an entire large space with some amount of its light not only in the place where it is, 
And this is the idea of Hanukkah in the darkest part of the year. It's the darkest part of the year, but by infusing that bit of light into it, the spirituality of Hanukkah, not only the candles, the candles are a materialized aspect of this idea, right? So in doing so, we can permeate the rest of the year with that kind of dedication, even though it's small. It's a small piece, like a truma, one hundredth of the total. It's a small piece, but by putting as much perfection as we can into the, our thoughts and our intention, our kavana in the small piece, this can permeate the rest of it. And this is an idea that's valuable to bring into Hanukkah with us, which is why I wanted to sort of add that on really what, from what was our discussion last week more than this. And we talked about this idea that this is a principle for, for coming back to the land, which if we are pushed off of it, Right, this idea of the Vilna Gaon. This is where it came from. Oh, you were away last week. No, I was no you were here. Yeah. Was it two weeks ago? You were away. Yeah. Okay. This idea that uh, the Vilna Gaon says no. It's not that Rashi was saying put on tefillin and make mezuzos to sense. show to to light your way home, but rather take trumas and maestros, even though you are not obligated in those things when you're outside of Eretz Yisrael. But the fact that we maeser our money. And in doing so, infuse aser kadeshatis asher, right? Aser ta aser. You shall surely tithe. Well, the word aser, tithe, is the same as ashir, wealth. Because by infusing into the tithe, by taking off a portion for God, the rest of the money becomes imbued with bracha. So this idea that we take this into our lives, take this into ourselves, this will bring us back. We want to be obligated in these things. We want to be back in Eretz Yisrael. We want to be living a life of awareness that everything comes from God and everything is dedicated to him. So we can infuse it in a small place, and it's almost like, I hate to say it, it's like a shortcut for having constant awareness of God in our lives. The shortcut is try and achieve that just at the beginning. So a Shema in the morning, a Shema at night. This infuses your day and your night with Dedication to accepting the yoke of heaven, the malchus of heaven, all day, by doing it in the morning and the night. Right? Starting your day with a bracha, or starting all of your davening with one really good baruch, <laughs> also will infuse the rest of your davening with something special, with, with an extra holiness, an extra kavana, even if you don't maintain it right through davening. Which, you know, when it isn't Rosh Hashanah and it isn't Yom Kippur, it's not so easy not to miss a word or two of Kavana when you're talking, let's say, right? Because I know I'm sitting with a, an unusual group of people here. But, but let's say, there could be like an S that we don't infuse with extreme <laughs> holiness here or there. Yeah. But if we can get maybe the first word right, that's a place that, that it's actually possible to th stop and think just before I start. You know, I think I, I told you this at the very, very first year which is not even recorded because I didn't think about recording them then. <laughs> and I said, when I sat down to start preparing this shear, I sat down and the first thing that came to me was really a business tool. And I'm always indebted to Dove Gordon in Israel who taught me this tool. He's an executive coach. He said, before you pick up the phone, think, what is my objective for this call? Before you write an email, think, what is my objective for this email? Very often, the purpose of the email is to get a call. 
and the purpose of the call is to get a meeting. The purpose of the meeting is to maybe get the deal. So don't give, don't waste a bunch of time in the email trying to get the deal. Think, what's the objective of this email? What will make it successful? Okay, so I sat down and I said, okay, so what's my objective when I dive in? And this is only because I had had a certain amount of training in doing this professionally. So I said, so what's my goal when I dive in? And I had trouble answering the question. I had trouble getting, answering that question. The answer is to have Kavana, but, but what's the goal of having Kavana? I mean, what, is, what am I trying to achieve? So it's connecting to my, so this led me down a path because I couldn't quickly answer it. Mm -hmm. That led me down a path that ended up with this discovery that, you know, man is created in order to pray, in order to connect the physical and the spiritual, to see the path of where it's all. It turns out this is the underlying, being able to answer that question becomes the underlying meaning. It is, in fact, you could look at it professionally. That is the goal of tefillah. So everything surrounding Tila ends up serving that same goal. There's different, different steps you take in order to get there. But ultimately, there's a unified goal. The Kavana is a piece of the, like each of these things. So what I discovered in that is it is possible when you sit down to Davin, when you open your sitter, to say, okay, wait, what am I doing? That, that 10 seconds before you start Davening, the Hasidim Rishonim used to spend an hour preparing to Davin and an hour coming out of it. But let's say we could spend, not a minute, 10 seconds at the beginning saying, what am I about to do? That's my, uh, right? You know, I have like my post-it notes. So that's one of them. Stop, what am I about to do? Just that, what's, what's the goal of this call? I'm, I'm picking up the phone to talk to God. It's better than that, I'm gonna stand in front of him. What's the goal? What am I trying to achieve? And this is something that by infusing that into the first word, into the first bracha, into the beginning of the process, we can infuse the rest of the process as well. Okay. And avoid uh, to be, you know, automatic, you know, the idea of... Uh, it helps, yes, it helps make it non-automated, even yeah. though it could be you think that thought and really within two minutes you're back to... Oh. Just saying the words because your mind has meantime gone to like, what is that noise in the kitchen? Like, you know, <laughs> the point is that if you take a little piece and at the beginning, or the best piece, that's the other alternative for Truma, right, then this infuses the holiness into the rest of it. It's a little bit of a reflection of that idea that the Maisa will not be perfect, but the Machshava can be. We can aim for perfection in Machshava. So even if we can't maintain it, if we can aim for a moment of perfection, of greater perfection, this will still affect the entire Misa, even though we, we understand that we won't get the Misa 100%. Not every time. All right. So this is a, I'm going to bring a sort of a extract out of another piece from Rav Moshe Eisman. You remember I brought that book last time, A Listening People. Um, and this is really from an end note. And he quotes the, the Gemara in Avodazara, Dav Hayomad Beis, which quotes Atana Develio, that Leolam Yasim Adam Atzmo Al Divrei Torah, it could be it's all Divrei Torah. 
It's not clear to me. It's spelled Aldevritora, and there's a little bit of a, a suggestion about that afterward. Kishor leol ukechamor lamasa. A person should always place upon himself the yoke of the words of Torah in the same way that an ox shoulders its yoke and a donkey shoulders its burden. The word shoulders was added by me because it's places, but it's to place upon one's back, right? Okay, now you hear that the Gemara is echoing this pasuk, right? Because this pasuk was visamtem, you shall place, right? Laolam yasim adam, a person should always place. So it's an echo of this pasuk. A person, temis devorai ele, you should place these words of mine on your hearts and on your souls. And now the Gemara sort of seems to learn from this pasuk. A person should always place on himself the yoke of learning Torah the way an ox takes its yoke and a burden is taken on by a donkey or a chamor. So he says that the reading of the Gemara, which apparently varies, there's a couple versions of this Gemara, which happens occasionally, or at least, actually, I'm sorry, the Gemara doesn't have different versions. The Tana Devei Eliyahu has different versions, which is quoted by the Gemara, indicates that this admonition is limited to the matter of Torah study, that when it comes to learning Torah, no yoke should be too uncomfortable, no burden should be too heavy. This is just piece one, okay? When it says you shall place the words of Torah on your heart and on your soul, that word on, al, it's like the word ol, a yoke. I really never thought of it before. That that's the word ol, a yoke, it's because it's al, it's on top. It, it, it's coming down from above. When it comes to Torah, we should be the way the animal is, which is it's perfectly satisfied. It's doing its purpose. This is what it does. It gets up. You put the yoke on it. It goes. It doesn't stop and think, well, this today's a little heavy. It just goes ahead and goes on and carries as it can the yoke that's on it. And that's how we're supposed to feel to get the truth of Torah. Until we feel that we found the truth of any particular words of Torah, it's not a question of this is too hard for me, this is taking too long, I don't have an answer yet. You just keep going. And you keep going until you find it. And eventually you get there. Now, it seems to me, I'm not an expert, I'm extremely far, I'm not even a novice in this particular Gemara, let alone any other one, that What's described in the way that an ox carries a yoke and a donkey carries a burden. Really, that's two different ways of working. Because when an ox has a yoke on its neck, no matter how heavy the load is behind it, the weight of the yoke doesn't change. So as long as the ox is standing still, it didn't matter how much load was behind it. When it feels the weight of the load is when it pushes itself forward with the yoke, and now it's trying to pull the load behind it. It's not bearing the weight of the load upon itself. The load is on the wagon and back, and it's only the degree to which the ox is pushing and pulling 
with the yoke and trying to draw the load that it feels it, which means that it's the, you could say, the commitment to make the effort. And the more effort you put in, it's true, the more load you feel. So it's up to you how much you lean into it. The second the ox stops, the load is as if it isn't there at all. It's just the yoke. On the other hand, a chamor, a donkey, when it carries a burden, the burden is weighing upon its body. And no matter what it does, even if it stands still, even if it crouches down, the weight is going to be pressing against it. You can't escape the load. So I'm not, I'm not, yeah. Sure. Yeah, the ox is always the, the, the work. The, the work. Right. Rav Hirsch always to, says yes. like a par and a shore. That's yeah. the hard work, so, the big sticking into so it. So someone wants to work on himself and to develop and connect, etc. Yeah. It's relative how much he will put, how much he will feel. But someone who doesn't, who's involved in the here and now in the physical, it will always feel heavy. Yeah. Yes. I, I think I think you're right. I think that that's why over here when we have al levavchem and al nafshechem, and the idea that we call this kabbalas ol mitzvos, accepting the yoke of mitzvos, with the ox, it does depend how much it leans into it. It's the willingness to accept the load, and that is under the control of the ox. It can't control how much load there is but it does constantly keep control over its willingness to make the effort. Whereas someone who's more in chamor right. is saying, well, this burden's just put upon me. Right. And it could be resented, but that won't get rid of it. And in a funny way, the ability to say, I lean into it, I accept it, I embrace it, it also gives you the control of the weight that you feel. Yeah. Okay. Now, I want to start to move on to the next phrase. So we've been talking about v'samtem estevarai eile, for the most part, even though the end of the phrase is alevavchem ve'al nafshechem, which is still only partway through the Pasuk. Upon your hearts, you should place these words upon your hearts and upon your souls. And in looking at this, I found that Rav Schwab, you remember that we left open sort of closing off the last little segment, this was an approach according to the Vilna Gaon's understanding of Rashi. And I did say the Ramban goes according to the usual reading of the Rashi, right? This idea that it's talking about, no, it's talking about the mitzvahs we see right here. This is the tefillin, this is the mezuzos. And that I found that difficult. Now, what I found is that Rav Schwab doesn't take the approach where I went off with the Grah. He says, Ramban raises the obvious question. The Sifri seems to indicate that Tefillin and Mezuzah are really only operative in Eretz Yisrael and are only practiced in Gaulas to ensure that they not be forgotten. What connection is there between these mitzvos and Eretz Yisrael? Because these mitzvos are not operative only in Eretz Yisrael. So what aspect then is different outside than inside? If after all, okay. And then he says, and this is interesting because I didn't realize this about the Ramban. 
but I definitely rely more on Rob Schwab's understanding of the Ramban than my own. He says Ramban does not answer this question and ends the matter by saying this madrash contains a deep secret. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow I missed that. I know that the Ramban does discuss this topic in other places, which is possibly part of why. Yeah, but so now we could feel not so bad that we didn't go in accordance with the Ramban, because what are we going to do with that anyway, right? This, uh, this is great sheer. I once listened to it called What, Me, a Kabbalist? You know, like, <laughs> okay, fine, if it's a deep secret, let me go off and find something a little more on the surface where I could find it, right? Okay, but he says, even simple people like us who are not privy to this secret must try to understand the Sifri. We still have a Rashi here. We still have a Sifri. We still need to understand something that we could relate to. And he gives a different explanation. And different. He gives an explanation to understand. So then what can we gain from the idea that in some way doing to, uh, wearing tefillin and putting up mezuzos when done outside of the land of Israel are not fully fulfilling the mitzvah? And at the same time, that in some way they show us the way back. Okay. And that's, that's because it follows, right? It follows you shall be quickly lost from the good land which God has given you. So it's talking about outside. So he says there's something about these three mitzvahs that they actually have in common. Uh, the three mitzvahs here being Talmud Torah, tefillin, and mezuzah. That the Rashi only brought the tefillin and the mezuzah, but in these actual passages, we have tefillin, then Torah, and then mezuzah. Although these, these three mitzvos are mitzvos that are not teluyos ba'aretz, they don't depend on the land of Israel. It's a mitzvah to do them outside the land as well. And yet, in reality, what we find is that once we have been lost from the land, we are unable to do these mitzvos fully. This is, now we have to understand, but that's a pretty strong statement. Wow. Not that we aren't high enough to do the mitzvos, the, the, the obligation for the mitzvos didn't change. Ow, did that hurt? Can <laughs> I take a deep breath? Yeah, something got stuck. No, she's something stuck. She can't get it out. Let me help you move her. Even though it's true, these are not mitzvahs that depend on Eretz Yisrael. We're obligated them all the time. It's called mitzvahs haguf, meaning we're just obligated in them anyway. But we find that the reality is we are unable to perform them completely since we left the land not dependent on the land in the way that Meiser and Truma is, but somehow dependent on the reality of having been lost from the land. So now he's going to explain in what way this is, that for now, we do the mitzvos, but this is what he calls, it's like the tziun, the signpost, the road marker. It's like we did the mitzvah, but it's not the whole thing. It's just a sort of skeleton mitzvah. You can see where the mitzvah is. But you don't have the whole thing until the time of Mashiach. So and here's the example. Tefillin was supposed to be worn all day. Right. So with tefillin, he, he actually does it in a different order, but let's do it that way. The mitzvah of tefillin is to wear tefillin all the time, all day, by day. I don't think by night. Right. 
And yet we find that once the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, and once we start being lost from the land, we become less and less able to wear tefillin all the time. And although there are, you will see here and there, there are people who wear tefillin all the time, we don't encourage anyone to do that. Because in order to wear tefillin, you have to maintain constant awareness of God's presence with you. You can't talk about certain things. You can't, right? So you can't think about certain things. And that's why less and less men wear tefillin. We wear tefillin at least while saying Shema and generally during all of davening, and that's about it. Some people will extend it, they'll put their tefillin on and go to shul with the tefillin on. Maybe they'll come home with their tefillin on, but that's kind of the limit of most people's ability to extend the mitzvah tefillin. So he's saying the, the way the sifri would apply to that is that the sifri is telling us, do the best you can for the time being. And when Mashiach comes, you are poised with it. You are already into it. I think you could almost apply the other lesson to this as well, which is you may have put a lot of effort and not gotten a great result, but when Mashiach comes, you've planted a stake, you've planted a signpost that will take you to the redemptive state of tefillin. Yeah? You've, in your effort, in the work you put in, you've planted a stake in that mitzvah. And maybe the results weren't perfect, but when a time of perfection comes, all of that effort, all of that intention, all of the perfection you put into your mind and intentions will be able to bear fruit in that environment. And then you can go back to tefillin all the time. With Talmud Torah, with learning Torah, very interesting take on it, because there are certainly people who sit and learn all the time. And that's not so different from the olden days. There were people who worked also. It wasn't like the entire Klal Yisrael sat and learned full time. Although, you know, the traditional definition of a balabas, meaning somebody who, who's not a full time learner, is somebody who works five hours a day and learns eight, you know, but okay. He says, this mitzvah of learning Torah, what is it? It's vilimadatem osam espenechem lidaberbam. Teach the words of Torah to your children to speak about them. That is a very clear reference to Torah Shabal Peh. That's oral Torah. That's handing it down from father to son and speaking it, not writing it. But what has happened? As the Gullus began to progress, as we started to be lost from the land, enemies came in, and we have displacement, even before we left the land, but we have the displacement within the land because of enemies coming in, then the oral law could not be kept in a perfect state. And it had to be written down, and this is not a good, this is temporary. This is not a positive thing. This is because otherwise we're afraid we would lose it at all. So we write down the Mishnah and then write down the Gemara and we print all of our Svarim. We can't rely really on an oral law until the time Mashiach comes and learning Torah Baal Peh will be reinstituted. And you can see how the printing and the writing of the Torah Shabal Peh is a tziyun, it's a marker, it's putting a stake in the ground, it's something you can hang on to 
so that you can put your all, such as it is, into Torshaval Peh, even though the results are going to be limited by the finite writing. <laughs> he says, how come Jews didn't invent the printing press? Now, it's a funny question. Like, I don't know, how come Jews didn't invent airplanes? I mean, why? He says, no, but Jews, I mean, of all people to have a motivation to come up with a way to replicate books over and over and over again, I mean, you would think that someone would have come up with something, even if it was block press printing, you know, like where you carve it out and something. You would think, you know, but it's the Chinese and it's the Germans. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but he says, you would, he says, no, 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 you wouldn't want that. Hashem wouldn't want that to come because that's not ideal. This is a, this is a fallback position. This is just how we're coping and getting by. But it's not the perfect way of Torah Shaval Peh. And the third mitzvah mentioned here is mezuzah. Okay, now mezuzah. I have to tell you, when he starts with mezuzah, I'm like, I can't wait to see what are you going to say here. How could you, I mean, mezuzah, you put the mezuzah on your house, you put the mezuzah on your house. Now, I know that there are certain differences. For example, in Eretz Yisrael, you can't sleep even one night in a house or a room that doesn't have a mezuzah. You put the mezuzah up. But... In America, let's say, in Chutzlaretz, you can wait up to a month. We say it's not considered a permanent residence unless you're living there for at least a month. So sometimes people will move into a house. They might move in first and put the mezuzahs up in a few days. But we don't do that in Eretz Yisrael. You put that mezuzah up before you ever move in. Okay. But he says... The mitzvah of mezuzah is al mezuzos besecha uvisharecha. The mezuzos of your home, your private space, uvisharecha, and your gates, your public spaces. That's the mitzvah of mezuzah. It's not just in your home, it's your home and your public space. Now, how, that's because most old cities were surrounded by walls. So you have gates to come in. and you put, But nowadays, we're outside of our own country. Our public spaces are not our spaces. We can't put mezuzahs on them for the most part. He, he, said, he says he remembers himself seeing mezuzahs in the gate of the old city of Rottenburg, Germany. Interesting, because it's not like the whole city was Jewish, but somehow, right? But this idea that the way that we do mezuzah, this is the only mezuzah we really know. If you ever go into the old city in Jerusalem, in certain places people have donated mezuzahs. I don't understand exactly how somebody wrote them. <laughs> you get mezuzahs that are a foot tall, two feet tall, right? <coughs> Great big mezuzah entering the gateway. That's what it means to come into a city. The whole city has a mezuzah on it. It's not that's the individual home. The individual home, this is very important. This doesn't minimize it. But it's such a small taste of what it means to live in a space with a mezuzah. Because the minute we walk out, we're sort of mezuzahless. And again, this is something until we return to the land. When we return to the land, we have an entire existence, an entire living in spaces where publicly and privately we're all living under the, the influence of a mezuzah and an environment of a mezuzah.
And that will appear to us as a natural progression of the mitzvah from the minimal form practiced today to the optimal form practiced when Mashiach comes. And I found that this was such a, a beautiful and also satisfying explanation of that very difficult understanding of the Rashi. Just one he, he writes it in Hebrew also in his mind. I'm going to switch this over here, though. Okay. Okay. I'm having a crisis because Staples has a mistake in their inventory system on these sheet protectors. And so they don't keep them in stock reliably in any store because the number, the product number, does not show, uh, shows up as unrecognized, even in the store, where there's a label on the mm -hmm. shelf. I took a picture of the label. They, they enter the numbers, they scan the numbers, and it won't come up in the product system, and you call them. So I always have, like, a crisis. I'm always afraid I'm never going to find any more of them. What will we do? Okay. Now, what is the significance... Moving right along. What is the significance of alavavchem ve'al nafshechem? I want to focus on that phrase. Put the words on your heart and on your soul. Now, of course, we hear here the echo of loving Hashem, bechol avavcha, with all your heart, uvechol nafshecha, and all your soul, uvechol meldecha, and all your might. Or we had in the beginning, v'hayayim shamoa tishme'u le'ahava, to love Hashem and serve him, bechol levavchem uvechol nafshechem with all your hearts and all your souls. So here you have sort of the close bracket on that. Put these words of mine on your hearts and on your souls. So you can hear why, for example, the Ibn Ezra says, what this is telling you is, if you take this to heart, you won't be lost from the land. In other words, im shamoa, on the positive side, if you listen and you serve Hashem with your heart and your soul, then you'll be on the land and it will be good for you there. If you stray, then you will, it will not be good for you on the land, then you'll be lost from the land. So therefore, put this on your heart and on your soul. In order that you not be lost from the land, lima'an, for the purpose of yirbu yimechem vimevenechem, that your days and the days of your children will be lengthened upon the land. And that, that's a very clear flow. That's the Ibn Ezra. It's a little different from the other approach, which is the cure after the fact, which is more how Rashi took it. Right? Rashi's saying, no, 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 it's not saying avoid that from happening, prevent it from happening. Rashi's saying, it, it, that's going to happen, here's how you return. Mm -hmm. There is a difference. Okay, but what's, what's alivavchem? And Sephorno says, how do you put words on your heart? We might not have thought to ask the question because it's a common way of speaking. <laughs> Take these words to heart. But we realize we have to ask the question as soon as we say, take these words to soul, because this is not a common way of speaking. And then what is it telling me? I mean, as soon as I see that I have a question on al nafshechem, I realize I have to ask the question of al avavchem. Once I realize that I don't have perfect clarity on what it means take my words onto your soul, then I realize I better check and see if I knew what it meant take the words onto my heart. So Sforno says, take these words and place them on your hearts. 
to contemplate them. And in fact, there are many, many places where we see that the heart, the lave, is associated with bina, with intuition, which is itself related to lehisbonein, to think about something deeply. Because when you think about something very, very deeply, then you start to have bina. You start to have flashes of insight connecting one idea to another because you've integrated it so deeply. It's different from chachma, where the more you think about it, the more new data you have. With bina, the more you think about it, the more deeply rooted that one idea becomes. And then you are able to intuit out of it new things. But it's not that anybody told you those things. And what is al-nafshechem? How, how would you fulfill putting the words of God upon your soul? Lekaimam biratzon. Keeping them with will. Ratzon, because you desire to, you want to. This is the Kabbalah's all mitzvos. Accepting it, receiving it, embracing it, leaning into it, saying, I want it. When I keep these words of God and I do the mitzvos with ratzon, with, with will, because I want to, not because it's forced on me, then it's al-nafshechem. Now, Rav Schwab takes another step on it. It's a little note. It's not expanded out. Sometimes at the end, in Mayan Beis HaShoev, at the end of a parsha, he'll, have, he'll put some small notes that haven't been fleshed out into whole essays. So he says, here comes this command. After the Torah has told us, you will be quickly lost from the good land. And the intention is that the Torah is obligating a person to place upon his heart all of these ideas and mitzvos which were relevant in the time of the Beis HaMikdash and Eretz Yisrael. So he's continuing on from the idea, that idea of do these mitzvos even when you're not there. He's saying all the mitzvos that are relevant to the land of Israel, Truma and Meiser and Leket and Shechecha, and peya and karbonos, all of these mitzvos which we don't have now available to do, and yet they are our mitzvos, we should place them on our hearts. These are the things which we place on our hearts. Even though because of our own sins we can't actually do them, therefore these things will be on our hearts and on our souls. They won't be in our hands. They won't be, you know, al yedechem. There will be an os al yedchem, but they won't actually be on your hands. They won't be right, with your actual effort because we've sinned. We can't do them. But these words will be alevavchem, through learning about the mitzvos. Do you see how it's this, he's basically taking this idea of the Sforno. He didn't quote the Sforno. The Sforno said, how do you do alevavchem? By thinking about it deeply. How do you do alnavshechem? By doing mitzvos with ratzon. So here, he's taking this idea and just expanding it out more. He's saying, how do you keep these mitzvos, the mitzvos that are teluyos ba'aretz, hundreds and hundreds of mitzvos that we can't keep? No korban Pesach, no korban Tamin, no mincha, none of the mitzvos for kohanim, basically, right? There's so much we can't do. Our lives are, are impoverished by the lack of mitzvos. We think we have so many mitzvahs, we have such a lack of mitzvahs. So how do we keep them? On our hearts, by thinking about them, learning about them, learning how to do a korban, 
learning how to do my, how to take meiser and truma, learning these mitzvahs, the al nafshechem, which is a lashon of ratzon, of will. That's this is what Sforno said. What would it look like if it was will? How do you perform these mitzvahs with will if you can't do them? So you can already hear what he's going to say. You perform them as best as you can, which is willing to do them. Learning how to do it so that you could do it. And then when push comes to shove in the moment and you can't do it, you wish you could do it. You will to do it, but what can you do? Hashem stopped you. It's our own fault. It's our own sins. But nonetheless, we're forced. We're onus. We're in a state of force. We try to do a mitzvah and we're stopped. So what would that look like? It would look like sitting. Sitting means, in other words, not doing, right? Sitting, let's suppose like the word harhatsofim, Mount Scopus, right? Harhatsofim. Tsofe is to look out from a distance, but it has a suggestion of anticipating. Okay, because you're watching to see when someone will come. So Harhatsofim is where they would set people to watch if anyone was coming. Because it's anticipatory. Sitting, umitzapeh, and anticipating, waiting for Hasman Shiyucha the time when you can do the mitzvahs. You can't do them, but you get yourself ready to do them. And you're waiting to do them. Ulahispalo, it looks like. Praying really, really praying and hoping and asking God for the Beis Hamikdash to be rebuilt in our times. I saw something interesting elsewhere. Why do we say quickly in our days? He said, this is actually from Rav Schwab. I didn't say it back then. Because over here it was you will be lost quickly from the land. And what's quickly? It was something like 852 years we were on the land. So God's idea of quickly can be a long time from our perspective. And so we say the base of Mikdash should be built quickly via Menu, <laughs> according to our calculations of quickly. <laughs> really saying, God, I want to do this mitzvah. I want to try it out. I want to be sprinkled with, a, with the water of a paraduma. I don't want to be tummy. Right? And that, that's what it looks like. So piece number one is, this is something practical. It's something you could really sit and you can think about. You can really, in your davening, stop and say, wait, so what mitzvah is there here? Can I visualize what it would look like? Can I learn something about how, how to perform it? Can I be ready for it? And maybe when I've learned about it, I'll be able to do it. And if all of a sudden I find that I'm still not able to do it, then I really want to. I'm disappointed that I can't, and I want to do it. And point number two is understanding that waiting breathlessly and wanting desperately for Mashiach to come and the Beis HaMikdash to be rebuilt is a demonstration of love of mitzvos and of a desire to do mitzvos. It is the outcome of it. That's what it looks like when 
you're thinking about mitzvahs and rooting them in your heart and wanting to do them with will, then what it will look like is that when there are mitzvahs you can't do, you really want to do them. And that's relevant because it can happen that we come across somebody who confesses that they don't really wish that Mashiach would come. Not just because they're comfortable, but because maybe they're uncomfortable about certain mitzvahs. And difficult for them to think, you know, when Mashiach comes, there's going to be, I don't know, whatever it is, animal sacrifices. It's a bit of a machlokas, but let's say. Or, Mohammed's mitzvah. Or, yeah, I know now with the situation the way it is, it's much easier to imagine why a person would be able to come to terms with having to fight. But, um, I don't know, yibum. Whatever it is, whatever mitzvah it is that a person hasn't been able to root deeply enough in their heart, the way that looks is not really wishing the mitzvah would be available. So I've come across this, and it's, it's um, you know, I came across this within the last few months. It was quite a long conversation. And my response was, but you're, you know, saying, saying that, you hope it won't be that way. I say you're missing the point, because the whole point is that Hashem's revelation of his Shechina makes us want to draw near to him, want to do mitzvahs. So the problem itself of not wanting, not feeling comfortable about some particular mitzvah by definition will go away. That problem becomes resolved. But it's still uncomfortable that somebody should be walking around, a Torah-observant Jew, who cannot wholeheartedly wish for Mashiach to come. This is a scary thought, because Mashiach coming is so much more. The, the fulfillment of the mitzvahs is an expression of the revelation of the Shekhinah and our bonding with the Shekhinah. And the yearning for the times of Mashiach is yearning for redemption to be resolved from our problems, the ones we recognize as problems, and maybe the ones we cannot recognize inside ourselves as problems. And I felt that this little piece helped me understand that the problem is not really that a person isn't wishing for Mashiach to come. The root of the problem is the learning about mitzvot and the implanting it in the heart to the state where it becomes a person's will, that God's will is my will. Right? Which means that there's hope. It's not that you have to actually convince someone differently. It's that what you hope is that through their continued learning, they will come to a place in their own mind and in their own heart where they feel that Hashem's will is what they want. Or at least, as we've talked about, if Hashem's will isn't my will, then at least I want my will to be Hashem's will. Because then you're looking forward to Mashiach coming, right? Then you're saying, even if I cannot wholeheartedly embrace the concept of an irhanidachas, for example, right, which is a city where all of the people have gone over to worship idols and it has to be wiped out. It seems that it never probably happened, although it's not clear. Gamar seems to say both ways, that it never happened or that somebody saw it. So I don't know, right? So, so let's say I can't fully embrace this mitzvah of irhanidachas, but I want to, because I understand that Hashem has told us this is his will, then if I'm not holding there, I want to hold there. Right? We've talked about that. But that, that's the idea of hamitoch shalom lishma ba lishma, according to Rav Dessler. It depends upon what you really want 
the mitzvah to be lishma. You want that God's will should be your will, even if it isn't quite there yet. Okay. And this is how he puts it in English, which I thought was really beautiful. Place devarai ela, these words of mine, meaning the aforementioned conditions for keeping Eretz Yisrael on your hearts and on your souls. We are told here that while we are in Gullus, we are to, to desire with all of our hearts and souls the reinstatement of the conditions described here in which the Jewish nation lives on its land under the rule of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And you can kind of hear like, that is the definition of Kabbalah's mitzvos, of Kabbalah's scharva onesh. It really is, except, I mean, and we start to understand that there's an avoda to the second paragraph. The first paragraph of Shema, there's an avoda of loving Hashem. I don't mean avoda isn't bad. I mean, it's, it's a project. You work on it. You think about it. You visualize our willingness to give up our lives for Hashem. It's something we work on. But what's to work on if you're describing that there is scharononish? Okay, there is. It's a reality. You start to see here, there's something we work on. We work on the desire to live directly under God's rule. On your souls is to be understood here as a deep longing of the heart. Ratzon. As in, l'shimcha u'lezichrecha ta'avas nafesh. Your name and the mention of your name is the taiva of our souls. That's what we yearn for. The longing for HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the desire of the soul. We are to consistently look forward to and long for the fulfillment of the immediately preceding words of Asher Hashem Nosein Lachem, the good land which God is giving you, in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us that he will eventually give Eretz Yisrael back to us. Our Chazal call this never-ending hope for the reunion of HaKadosh Baruch Hu with the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael under the rule of Torah, Tzipia Yeshua, longing for salvation. This is one of the questions, one of the first questions we're asked after we pass away and we come to the next world. Hatsipisa Yeshua? Did you long for salvation? And you think, well, of course, like who wouldn't? If anyone's in trouble, of course you. No, you actually have to think about it. You actually have to think, can I honestly say that I'm longing for salvation? And if I'm not longing for the reunion with God in Eretz Yisrael and all that that entails, Kabbalah's mitzvot and living under Sharon Onish, then at least maybe I can get to where I want to want it. I want to want it. I can see enough of a hint of the beauty of that to want to want it and to be honest with where that is still missing inside of myself. And in longing for the certainty of its fulfillment, we study the laws of the mitzvahs which are linked to the land, to the Beis HaMikdash, to the Karbanos, the laws of Tuma and Tahara, as if the Beis HaMikdash were already rebuilt. And in doing so, we are performing the sacrificial service. We are fulfilling the practical applications of the laws that depend on living in Eretz Yisrael. So I'll stop here for today. Um, and in Hashem, we'll, we'll continue a few smaller ideas on this pasuk and well we move on um we might even move on to the next pasuk we'll see <laughs> <Next>. <laughs>